Chapter Three of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Three. Mrs. Saunders said, "Mother, don't let that soap boil over. Cassie, keep away from it." Lord, replied Mrs. Saunders, there's no fat in the bones to bile. Cassie's grown dreadful fast, ain't she? How long has the old man been dead, Miss Morganson? Three years, Mrs. Saunders. How time do fly, remarked Mrs. Saunders, mopping her wrinkled face with a dark blue handkerchief. The winter sass is hardly put in the cellar, for we have to cut off the sprouts and up the taters for planting again. We shall all follow him soon and she stirred the bones in the great kettle with the vigour of an ogress. When I heard her ask the question about Grandfather Locke, the interval that had elapsed since his death swept through my mind. What a little girl I was at the time! How much had since happened! But no thought remained with me long. I was about to settle whether I would go to the beach and wade, or into the woods for snake-flowers till school-time, when my attention was again arrested by Mrs. Saunders, saying, "'I suppose Marm Tarmer went off with a large slice, and Mr. John Morganson is mad to this day?' Mother was prevented from answering by the appearance of the said Mr. John Morganson, who darkened the threshold of the kitchen door, but advanced no further. I looked at him with curiosity. If he were mad, he might be interesting. He was a large, portly man, over sixty, with splendid black hair slightly grizzled, a prominent nose, and fair complexion. I did not like him, and determined not to speak to him. "'Say good morning, Cassandra,' said Mother, in a low voice. "'No,' I answered loudly, "'I am not fond of my grandfather.' Mrs. Saunders mopped her face again, grinning with delight behind her handkerchief. "'Debbie, my wife, wants you, Mrs. Saunders.' "'After you have made Mary's soap,' he said. "'Surely,' she answered. "'Where is the black horse to-day?' he asked Mother. "'Locke has gone to Milford with him.' "'I wanted the black horse to-day,' he said, turning away. "'He's a mighty grand man he is,' commented Mrs. Saunders. "'I'm pesky glad, Miss Morganson, that you have never put foot in his house. "'I applaud your spirit.' "'School time, Cassie,' said Mother. "'Will you have some gingerbread to carry? "'Tell me when you come home what you have read in the New Testament.' "'My boy does read beautiful,' said Mrs. Saunders. "'Where's the potash, Miss Morganson?' "'I heard the bell toll as I loitered along the roadside, "'pulling a dandelion here and there, for it was the month of May, "'and throwing it in the rut for the next wheel to crush.' When I reached the schoolhouse, I saw through the open door that the New Testament exercise was over. The teacher, Mrs. Desire Cushman, a tall, slender woman in a flounced calico dress, was walking up and down the room. A class of boys and girls stood in a zigzag line before her, swaying to and fro, and drawling the multiplication table. She was yawning as I entered which exercise forbade her speaking, and I took my seat without reprimand. 
The flies were just coming. I watched their sticky legs as they feebly crawled over my old unpainted notched desk and crumbled my gingerbread for them, but they seemed to have no appetite. Some of the younger children were drowsy already, lulled by the hum of the whisperers. Feeling very dull, I asked permission to go to the water-pail for a drink, let the tin cup fall into the water so that the floor might be splashed, made faces at the good scholars, and did what I could do to make the time pass agreeably. At noon my mother sent my dinner, with a request that I should stay until night, on account of my being in the way while the household was in the crisis of soap-making and whitewashing. I was exasperated, but I stayed. In the afternoon the minister came with two strangers to visit the school. I went through my lessons with dignified inaccuracy and was commended. Going back, I happened to step on a loose board under my seat. I determined to punish Mrs. Desire for the undeserved praise I had just received, and pushed the board till it clattered and made a dust. When Mrs. Desire detected me, she turned white with anger. I pushed it again, making so much noise that the visitors turned to see the cause. She shook her head in my direction, and I knew what was in store, as we had been at enmity for a long time, and she only waited for a decisive piece of mischief on my part. As soon as the visitors had gone, she said in a loud voice, "'Cassandra Morganson, take your books and go home. You shall not come here another day.' I was glad to go, and marched home with the air of a conqueror, going to the keeping-room where my mother sat with a basket of sewing. I saw Temperance Tinkham, the help, a maiden of thirty, laying the table for supper. "'Don't wrinkle the tablecloth,' she said crossly, "'and hang up your bonnet in the entry, where it belongs.' Taking it from me as she gave the order, and going out to hang it up herself. "'I am turned out of school, mother, for pushing a board with my foot.' "'Aya,' ah, said father, who was waiting for his supper, "'come here.' <whistles> and he whistled to me. He took me on his knee, while Mother looked at me with doubt and sorrow. "'She's almost a woman, Mary.' "'Lock, do you know that I am thirty-eight? "'And you are thirty-three, father,' I exclaimed. He looked younger. I thought him handsome. He had a frank, firm face, an abundance of light, curly hair, and was very robust.' I took off his white beaver hat and pushed the curls away from his forehead. He had a riding whip in his hand. I took that, too, and snapped it at our little dog, Kip. Father's clothes also pleased me. A lavender-colored coat with brass buttons and trousers of the same color. I mentally composed for myself a suit to match his, and thought how well we should look calling it Lady Teasel's house in London. Only I was worried because my bonnet seemed to be too large for me. A loud crash in the kitchen disturbed my dream, and Temperance rushed in, dragging my sister Veronica, whose hair was streaming with milk. She had pulled a panful over her from the buttery shelf while Temperance was taking up supper. Father laughed, but Mother said, "'What have I done to be so tormented by these terrible children?' Her mild blue eyes blazed as she stamped her foot and clenched her hands. Father took his hat and left the room. 
Veronica sat on the floor with her eyes fixed upon her, and I leaned against the wall. It was a gust that I knew would soon blow over. Veronica knew it also. At the right moment she cried out, "'Help, Mary! She is sorry!' "'Do eat your supper!' Temperance called out in a loud voice. "'The hash is burnt to flinders!' She remained in the room to comment on our appetites, and encourage Veronica, who was never hungry, to eat. Veronica was an elfish creature, nine years old, diminutive and pale. Her long, silky brown hair, which was as straight as an Indian's, like mother's, and which she tore out when angry, usually covered her face, and her wild eyes looked wilder still, peeping through it. She was too strange-looking for ordinary people to call her pretty, and so odd in her behavior, so full of tricks, that I did not love her. She was a silent child, and liked to be alone. But whoever had the charge of her must be watchful. She tasted everything, and burnt everything within her reach. A blazing fire was too strong a temptation to be resisted. The disappearance of all loose articles was ascribed to her, but nothing was said about it, for punishment made her more impish and daring in her pursuits. She had a habit of frightening us by hiding and appearing from places where no one had thought of looking for her. People shook their heads when they observed her. The Morganson smiled significantly when she was spoken of, and asked, "'Do you think she is like her mother?' There was a conflict in Mother's mind respecting Veronica. She did not love her as she loved me, but strove the harder to fulfill her duty. When Very suffered long and mysterious illnesses, which made her helpless for weeks, she watched her day and night, but rarely caressed her. At other times, Very was left pretty much to herself and her ways, which were so separate from mine that I scarcely saw her. We grew up ignorant of each other's character, though Very knew me better than I knew her. In time I discovered that she had closely observed me when I was most unaware. We began to prosper about this time. Old Lock Borgenson had a long head, people said when they talked of our affairs. Father profited by his grandfather's plans, and his means, too. Less visionary, he had modified and brought out practically many of his projections. Old Locke had left little to his son, John Morgeson, in the belief that father was the man to carry out his ideas. Besides money, he left him a tract of ground running north and south, a few rods beyond the old house, and desired him to build upon it. This he was now doing, and we expected to move into our new house before autumn. All the Morgensons wished to put money in a company as soon as father could prove that it would be profitable. They were ready to own shares in the ships which he expected to build, when it was certain that they would make lucky voyages. He declined their offers, but they all knuckled to the man who had been bold enough to break the lifelong stagnation of Surrey, and approved his plans as they matured. His mind was filled with the hope of creating a great business which should improve Surrey. New streets had been cut through his property and that of Grandfather, who, narrow as he was, could not resist the popular spirit. Lots had been laid out, and cottages had gone up upon them. To matters of minor importance, father gave little heed. 
His domestic life was fast becoming a habit. The constant enlargement of his schemes was already a necessary stimulant. I did not go back to Mrs. Desire's school. Mother said that I must be useful at home. She sent me to Temperance, and Temperance sent me to play, or told me to go a-visitin'. I did not care to visit, for in consequence of being turned out of school, which was considered an indelible disgrace and long remembered, my schoolmates regarded me in the light of a pariah, and put on insufferably superior airs when they saw me. So, like Veronica, I amused myself, and passed days on the seashore or in the fields and woods, mother keeping me in long enough to make a square of patchwork each day, and to hear her read a psalm, a duty which I bore with patience, by guessing when the Selahs would come in and counting them. But wherever I was, or whatever I did, no feeling of beauty ever stole into my mind. I never turned my face up to the sky to watch the passing of a cloud, or mused before the undulating space of sea, or looked down upon the earth with the curiosity of thought, or spiritual aspiration. I was moved and governed by my sensations, which continually changed and passed away, to come again and deposit vague ideas which ignorantly haunted me. The literal images of all things which I saw were impressed on my shapeless mind, to be reproduced afterward by faculties then latent. But what satisfaction was that? Doubtless the ideal faculty was active in Veronica from the beginning. In me it was developed by the experience of years. No remembrance of any ideal condition comes with a remembrance of my childish days. And I conclude that my mind, if I had any, existed in so rudimental a state that it had little influence upon my character. End of chapter 3 Recording by Julia Lenarden.